0: Making the world healthier, safer, and more efficient. That's the mission for IT professionals at Lidos. And right now, they're looking for the next generation of innovators to help transform the business and change the future of work. Excellent pay and sign on bonuses available. Security clearance required. Put your software skills to work with Lidos. Learn more at slash PHX2. That's L E I D O slash PHX2. Grief
1: opens you up. It opens you up to the pain of other people. At the very beginning, to me, it felt like it is something that set me apart from the world, that I was behind a pane of glass and nobody could get to me. And you learn that no, 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 that's what makes you a part of the world. That is actually what
2: connects you to other people. What is up, everyone? This is Thrive 5, and I'm your host, Clarice Metzger, a storyteller and strategist at Thrive Global. In every episode of this podcast, we talk to women about how they thrive in this world and explore the crucial link between self-care and confidence. We hear stories of women who went from surviving to thriving and learn tips for boosting our well-being so we can unlock more resilience and joy within ourselves. This week, I'm talking to Nora McInerney, She's the host of the podcast, Terrible, Thanks for Asking, and the author of numerous books including No Happy Endings and It's Okay to Laugh, Crying is Cool Too. In this episode, we discuss being open about the tough things in life, the importance of empathy in the workplace, and how late 90s rom-coms are truly saving us right now. Let's dive on in.
1: Nora, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me.
2: I have been really wanting to have this conversation with you because with this pandemic raging on, so many of us are experiencing loss right now, but at the same time, we don't know how to give ourselves the time and the space to process it. Uh, Death is unfortunately a subject you are all too familiar with. So can you tell us a little more about the losses you faced and how that changed your life trajectory?
1: God, there's really just no way to do this without just bumming out your whole audience. so here we go prior to twenty fourteen I worked in advertising and marketing. I was doing you know the Lord's work. I was writing uh tweets for great cliffs <laughs> i was I was putting together social media strategies for a fossil fuels brand i was you know i was i was I was doing things and uh in twenty fourteen my husband Aaron died of brain cancer he'd been sick for three years. And six weeks before he died, my dad died of lymphoma. And six days before my dad died, I lost my second pregnancy. And those losses, obviously, like they would anybody, they shifted my perspective of life. They shifted my experience of life, which, you know, prior to that had been really fine, like pretty fine, pretty average issues, pretty much smooth sailing. And they shifted my career the The center of my work has now become hard things i i I went from working and marketing and advertising to. Uh, quitting that job, not recommended. don't quit your job. don't quit your job. don't just never do it. Uh, that's untrue. you There are times don't do it without a plan. I did not have a plan. I did not have a husband, and I had a child and I had a mortgage and I had debt, and I was like, I just can't go to work anymore and in the five years since then, I've written um books, uh, funny books about about sad things, mostly nonfiction, mostly memoir. I have started a podcast called Terrible Thanks for Asking. And I've started an organization called Still Kick In, which gives unrestricted grants to people who are going through hard things, which means um we got a lot of we got a lot of things going on right now. I, I don't know, my my world went from being feeling kind of like an outlier to sort of being an experience that a lot of people can relate to, not because everybody has a dead husband, dad, and and a lost pregnancy, but because
2: I don't know, 2020 is spared nobody. We're all in the club now. Oh, I mean, and I'm sure you've heard this so much, but I am sorry for those losses. And the reality is that we will all experience loss, but we don't all talk about it. And so you joke in your TED Talk that you've done your research and 100% of the people you know will die. Um, and it's funny because it's, it's true, but we act like it's not. And we obviously fear losing the people we love. But I think culturally, we kind of bury that fear. You know, like, let's, let's not talk about death. That's, that's unpleasant. But we do need to talk about it. And talking about death doesn't have to be so unpleasant. It can be yeah. honest and just a real conversation. So how do you think we go about doing that? I mean,
1: first of all, we have to have a culture that can talk about uh, the reality of life, too, which is that it's very hard. It is not fair in any way, but the systems that we have make it even less fair. And I think we're seeing that truly uh, in in a starker relief in the past year with with the way that COVID disproportionately affects uh, the poor, disproportionately affects communities of color and we are not a culture that prioritizes what it means to live, which means that we we suffer. You know, American culture is is very <laughs> relentlessly positive, right? Is you know, oh, like you'll get through it. There's a silver lining to everything. Mm-hmm. I, I just take issue with that. I don't think that there's like an upside to your child dying. I don't think that there's like a a reason why my husband got. Uh, stage four brain cancer when he was such a lovely person. I, I don't think that that's a really satisfying answer, but we are a country where if you have a baby and I mean, good luck, you got to go back to work. There's no there's no safety net for for people. There just isn't. And that's also true when somebody dies, that the average bereavement leave, I believe in the US is three days. That's on the generous side, which means you have less than a work week to plan and execute a funeral, um, deal with shock and, and possible trauma, and then get back to work. And you only get that that leave, those three paid days, if you're a full-time employee. It's not just death that we're bad at. We're uh, bad at talking about anything that is difficult because we have been conditioned to view these as individual weaknesses rather than what they are, which is systemic failures that make it really hard, that make just life really, really hard.
2: So true. And that really is a perfect segue to what I was going to ask next, which is there's been a lot of talk in the wake of the election that President-elect Joe Biden knows the language of grief and how that's so valuable for a nation that's healing As you just mentioned, healing from a pandemic, from systemic racism, from losing jobs or homes or family members, the the list could sadly go on. But why do you think that's a valuable trait in a leader, whether that's a leader of a country or of an organization?
1: I mean, having empathy, having compassion is, uh, I mean, I don't know. Those are traits that we, first of all, do not typically associate with men, which is garbage. And also, those are, I mean, what could be more important than having the depth of imagination to think beyond yourself, which is, I think, one of the most important traits that a leader can have is seeing outside of their own personal experience. Yeah. And really, to me, empathy and compassion are imagination. It is imagination and humility To be able to Mm -hmm. say, okay, so my my experience is not the only experience. And grief opens you up. It opens you up to the pain of other people. At the very beginning, to me, it felt like it is something that set me apart from the world. That this was, I was behind a pane of glass and nobody could get to me. And Mm -hmm. you learn that, no, 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 that's what makes you a part of the world. That is actually what connects you to other people is that you have lost something that you've lost something and it does give you a different kind of ability to see through a through a sometimes quickly closing keyhole to see I don't know that everybody else is also going through something or will go through something and once you've been on one side of it, it's it's very hard to – it's hard not to see the humanity in other people, even when there are people that you disagree with. Somebody left a comment on my Instagram and was like, you know, I'm voting for Trump. Have you checked your 401k? And I was like, no, I have not. Uh, LOL that – I mean, I just started one, FYI. <laughs> like, So, no, I don't check it very often. And also, to me, my own personal financial success is not – the benchmark by which I make decisions. Amen to that. Yeah, it's like, I mean, I don't know. It's just like, can we normalize sort of like voting against your own personal self-interest? I mean, you know, e pluribus unum used to mean something to us, right? Um, Right. From many, one. And instead it's like, well, you know, uh, well, you know, it's just more like unum, okay? Uh, Every unum for themselves. (laughs) And so I don't know. I do have like, I have, Yeah, I have a lot of tenderness for Joe Biden for that reason. You might fall in line with somebody who puts themselves first out of fear, but you will follow a person who cares about you and who
2: cares about Mm -hmm. other people. Other people. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, it really it reminds me of what you said about bereavement days and how quickly people are. Not only asked, but also like expected to just pick up and go back on leading meetings and building out these Excel spreadsheets when their partner, child, parent, best friend, whoever has passed and this person is grieving. It honestly, it makes, yeah. it makes you think like maybe managers should get a training in compassion um, so that they can be there for these people. I am only capable of unscientific studies, which I said in
1: my TED Talk for that reason. I was like, look, I is I'm not I'm not gonna look at data. I cannot read a chart, but I can tell you anecdotally, knowing a lot of widows, that people who did get a decent bereavement leave, people who did get, you know, compassion, it had to happen under the table. It had to happen outside of the system. Mm. It had to be all their colleagues saying, we're going to donate our PTO. It had to be their boss saying, look, we're just not going to document it, but don't come back for like six weeks. That sucks. You should not be punished for your very human experience because your boss has not yet learned to use their imagination. Yep.
2: It, it's It makes you think. It really does.
1: Really does. Sorry, you got you got me on a you got me
2: in. I'm in a mood now, Clarissa. <laughs> like it's <was> not. <laughs> no, I know. I <laughs> good. No, that's perfect. That's perfect for conversation. Um, so, to, moving on to your podcast. The title of your podcast is terrible. Thanks for asking. Everyone should go listen. Um, and it's playing on the idea that we all tend to say fine or good when people ask us how we're doing. Even if we've had a terrible day and nothing is going right and we're literally dying inside. And at Thrive, we have this principle of compassionate directness. And it's really based on the idea that without transparency and truth, we can't have powerful relationships in work or in life. So why do you think it's so hard for people to share how they're really doing? And how can we get more comfortable letting people into our emotional experiences?
1: Yeah. Wow. I love that, too. Like, you can't have connection and productive relationships without honesty. And also, I think it does all connect back to that sort of relentless positivity, that toxic positivity, that the idea that to appear well is to be well. Nobody wants to be, you know, a bummer. Nobody wants to burden somebody else. Yep. And I'm not advocating for you to, you know, go to Target and puke the truth of your existence all over the 16-year-old boy who's, who's, <sighs> right, you know, right. who's paid like $10 an hour to cashier. That's not, That's not it. But the people who are a true part of your life, and in many cases we do spend more time with our colleagues than with anyone else. In our lives, like I I talk to my colleagues probably more than my husband. Should I say that out loud? I already did. (laughs) And and you know, but our family, our friends, there are people who want to who to do their best for us, and they can't do that with bad information. Mm. So if somebody, if you're like, can you handle this? And they're like, Oh yes, and you find out weeks later well you know they're they're running on fumes they're completely exhausted they feel like crap how do you feel like as a manager as a colleague you feel like oh my why wouldn't you tell me but are we a safe place for people to tell the truth? I love that and we are not always yeah you know and and I think something that we try to do in in uh, in you know working on my podcast in the the company, that I have uh, called Still Kickin'. We are a company that exists to help people through hard things. We give away, you know, money. We just give unrestricted grants to people. People are working themselves to the bone because, oh, it's, you know, like, it's a nonprofit. Oh, like, we have such a small staff because, we're you know, we don't have a lot of money. What? What was I doing? I completely created this culture where it's like, well, I mean, that's how hard I work. That's how hard, I guess I just, I led by crappy example. That's just, that's just the truth of it. And we start meetings now and we do like a clearing, like what happened before this meeting? What are you, if you're carrying anything that is preventing you from fully focusing, like, hi, I'm five minutes late because my kid couldn't get on a zoom call. And, uh, you know, my dog is annoying me. You can say that, and we can make space for that. And I've been trying to practice in my relationships, sort of, I don't know if this is a phrase, and if it's not, let's make it one, which is conversational consent and saying, are you in a space to hear X mm, right mm-hmm. now? Oh, you are? Great. Here's what I need from you, Clarice. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you about this thing, and what I need is just you to listen. Or what I need is advice. Or what I need is help. I need a specific thing from you. So that we can sort of get into that practice, because I don't think that for me that was not modeled when i when I started my first job, it was like sh- show up, shut up, sit down, work ten hours <laughs> like and you know, and like if you like when you were a kid, did your parents ask about your feelings? Nope. No, like, and, and of course they didn't because they were boomers and their parents didn't ask about their feelings. And their parents didn't ask about their feelings. Like, we are just, like, we are just not fluent in the language that our interior lives matter and that they are a part of us. When people talk, like, oh, you have to bring your whole self to work, that doesn't mean, like, show up and be an an entire mess. But your self does show up to mm-hmm. work. You, There is not a... There is not a professional compartmentalizer out there who can be like, so. Um, outside of this room, I am um, deeply, you know, sad about uh, about the death of my dad. But don't worry, I shut
2: that off when I walk through the door. <laughs> No, I think, and we talk about that at Thrive a lot as well in terms of bringing your whole self to work. People love to say that, but what does that actually look like? Do you have the space and the room in your organization that if something is bothering you, such as losing a parent, it's okay. Your camera—I mean, you know—now we're in this virtual world, but your camera might be off for that day, or you might not be as responsive as you yeah. as you usually are because you're going through something. And that is what bringing your whole self to work actually looks like.
1: Yeah, sometimes it means not going to work, and that has to be okay. I had a colleague who kept saying, like, her. I mean, truly, things were so hard in her mm-hmm. life, and I could see it. And she kept saying, well, I don't want to take any time off now because someday it'll be really bad. And I was like, "Uh, that's now. Yeah. And, yes, it might be very bad again. And guess what? I will give you that same grace when it gets bad again. But right now I need you to turn off your email and – not check in for six weeks and I will keep paying you. And not every business can do that. But I also kind of give a little bit of a side eye to that because I'm like, mm, I think you can. <laughs> if you look at your executive pay, you can probably afford to 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 pay people who don't make that much, um, you know, to, to take care of their lives. Yep. Like our lives are important. If you can – Maintain a sense of stability. You will be a better employee. I think in some cases we almost have to make this like an economic play for people to give a rip about it. So it's I know, like, unfortunately, here's the here's the economic incentive. It's just better. It is just better. You will get better work from people if you also let them just go to the doctor in the middle of the freaking day and not exactly. check Slack while they're getting exactly. a pap smear.
2: You know. <laughs> And everything will be okay. The business will keep running. It will be okay. It's like,
1: could you think I remember the the specifics of the 911 email that I got when I was in the emergency room or in the ICU with, with my husband? No, I do not. All I remember is that this poor, this woman that I resented at the time but now see as like a completely overworked, overburdened woman was like, oh, I'll bring you a work laptop at the hospital. Like, oh my what? gosh. What like in what world would that still it's like now looking back at that like that was 9 years ago probably I'm like what was that emergency <laughs> Oh my
2: gosh. So in your book, The Hot Young Widows Club, you give tips to both those grieving, but also those supporting the grieving. And I think the latter is so important and something that we don't talk about enough. Yes. So what kind of things are the most helpful to ask and what would you say isn't so helpful?
1: Uh, Okay. So I call these people the grief adjacent. Mm. And people mostly want to know, which is like you're adjacent to it. And that means like you might even be experiencing it. It's just not the center of your world. And the most helpful thing you can do is remember, you're not here to fix something. You're not here to solve the grief, solve the problem. You are here to be present with what is and what what is. Is terrible. It sucks. It doesn't need to be anything else. So people ask mostly, what can I do? And I draw a very bad Venn diagram. And one of the circles is what you can do. And the other circle is what you will do. Mm. And the criteria for both of these is what can you do? What will you do humbly, competently, and if you can, consistently. I can remember their birthday. I can remember their anniversary. I can remember their death anniversary. I can remember to uh, send text messages. I can remember to, you know, I can just have have like meals delivered regularly. We can't gather right now. I know how terrible that is. But so what can you do? Like what is truly in your capability and what will you do? Again, you are not fixing the grief. You are here to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. Like, compassion means to suffer with somebody. Like, yeah, you will feel awkward. Okay, go feel awkward. (laughs) Guess what feels worse than awkward? Having your husband die. (laughs) Like, just go there. Go be uncomfortable. Like, and remember, everyone is new to this. Every single person. You know, I, I wasn't somehow, like, extremely adept at being widowed because, like, my husband had just died. I was also new to it. So everyone around me was new to it. And I think that's, like, that, that humility piece just comes up over and over. We want so badly to, like, do a good job. You're not there to, to, to do, be the best, you know, sort of, like, grief helper possible.
2: Like, you just got to show up. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and come right back with podcast host and author Nora McInerney.
0: No one wants to cut corners on a good night's rest. So why sleep on sheets that are just good enough? If you dream of comfortable sheets at a price that won't keep you up all night, look no further than Bolin Branch. Bolin Branch makes the softest organic sheets on the market, using 100% sustainable raw materials. As the first Fair Trade certified manufacturer of linen, you can feel as good about your sheets as they feel against your skin. Their signature hemmed sheets are made from lightweight organic cotton that gets softer with every wash. And they come in seven colors, from twin up to California king. Best of all, Bolin Branch gives you a fair price and a 30-day risk-free trial with free shipping and returns. So, experience the best sheets you've ever felt, only at BolinBranch.com. Get 15% off your first set when you use promo code SLEEP at checkout. That's Branch B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. Promo code SLEEP.
2: So I've heard you say that you don't want small talk, you want big talk. So how did your experience with grief impact the kind of relationships and conversations that you wanted to have in your life?
1: Oh, well, first I just did it all very badly and (laughs) terrible Thanks for asking. That was just pure uh, wishful thinking. That is what I wish I would have said. I wish I would have just been able to, uh, to get it to be more honest with myself, Mm -hmm. I could not do it. I could not not be good. I wanted to be the best widow ever. And guess what? That's Jackie O and it's never going to change. Okay. It is not a performance. Mm -hmm. I was not honest and I was not honest with myself, which made it very difficult to be honest with other people. And as a result, all my relationships uh, were withering on the vine. It was bad. And I remember feeling so far away from my family, from my siblings who are I'm very close to, who I love, who love me, Mm -hmm. who have always been there for me. And I remember being upset. You know, my sister had said something like, well, you it's like you expect us to know, you know, moves to a dance that you have not, you know, even choreographed yourself. She said it much better. And I was like, why just why don't you know what I need? Like, I shouldn't have to say it. Yeah, you should have to say it because people cannot feel needs that they are not aware of. Yep. And. If the only thing that you can say is, oh, I don't know what I need, I don't know how I feel, you have to say that. And in my house, F-words are fine. That's the only F-word. It's a problem because we have a four-year-old who just said this morning, mom, you scared the out of me. I was like, really? Because I'm six feet tall. Like, how did you not see me standing here? I think he just wanted to get some shock value, but – You know, if we have a real relationship and I care about you and I ask how you're doing, fine is not an answer. There are a lot of relationships that I don't have anymore after Aaron's death. And I it took a long time for me to realize that, oh, maybe that was maybe I had a little bit of something to do with it. Maybe I am the common denominator, which is the worst thing therapists say. I'm always like, I know. (laughs) I I, get it. (laughs) Yeah, I get it. I don't want to have you know, a million friends that I've surface level conversations with. I want to have real grounding relationships with the people who matter. And I I almost ruined it forever with my siblings, with some of my friends. And we've been repairing that. And I spent, you know, n- not not that long ago, a weekend with, you know, girls that I've known since second grade who I could just couldn't be around. And I couldn't tell them, I can't be around you because your husbands are alive and handsome and I'm jealous of you I couldn't do it yeah and so I just stopped texting back and I stopped calling and they thought okay well I guess she doesn't need us and no I needed you I just didn't know how to say it and you know we cried our faces off and this is you know five years later that this Mm -hmm. happened and so it's not it's not too late small talk has a time and a place obviously I just don't want it with the people uh, that I care about
2: Yep. And I think uh, being honest with yourself is important too, kind of unpacking those feelings that you're having and then figuring out how are you potentially blocking this person from even accessing you? Are you giving them that, are you giving that person the space yeah. to to check in on you, to, to actually give a real answer in terms of how you're feeling? And I, I really like not saying fine to the people that you're closest to, giving them a real answer.
1: Give me a real answer. And it's okay to push push each other on that too. And that's again, I think where that kind of conversational consent comes in and saying, like, you know, like uh, well, right now I don't really wanna like get into it. I'm not well, but I don't want to get into it. Like, that
2: is okay. You're you're at least like giving somebody information that they need. Conversational consent though, that is something that I am holding on to, I really like that. And I think that that's important, especially during this time when uh, we're mostly virtual and we can't really physically be around the people that we love or want to be around. So one of the things that we haven't really touched on is parenting. And I know that you are a mom. So has grief changed the way that you parent overall?
1: Uh, Probably, but I've been, I've never been not grieving. I I mean, I gave birth to Ralph when Aaron was, it was, I I wasn't even sure if he was going to be alive for his birth. Mm. And he got out of the hospital a few days beforehand. And so he did make it out and he was there, but I just, Ralph was born to a grieving mother. And so I don't know how else to parent. And I mean, so much of parenting is like TBD. And I've been on this kick lately where I'm like I don't want to hear what anyone has to say about parenting until their children are (laughs) middle-aged but like it is good to remember that kids have their own experience of all of this and often it is just as emotionally deep as ours and just as confusing for them and so I do try to name all of that as grief and let them know like yeah, these are you are experiencing grief. You will continue to experience grief over the things that you lost and that does not make you ungrateful. It does not make you unhappy. It does not make you somehow defective. It makes you absolutely a human being experiencing life. Yeah. And I did not I experienced grief as a child, did not know if I was if it was normal. I didn't know, like, after the funeral, are you still allowed to cry? Didn't feel like it. So you don't want to burden your children with your feelings, but also, like, they need you to to share some of that with mm-hmm. them. Because the, Ralph is seven, and he said, you know, I'm so sad about my dad being dead. Are you sad about my dad being dead? And I was like, dude, yes. Yes, of course. Like, I, I, do I not do a good enough job of that? Like, I mean, do, obviously you haven't read my books. <laughs> Okay. So <laughs> got to get you on that. Like <laughs> got to get you on that. Maybe I'll just give you the audiobook, <laughs> but you know that we have pictures of of all these different versions of our family all over our house Aww. because it is still a part of all of us. And I think that's important for kids that you're not trying to move on from something. You're not trying to avoid it. You're not trying to, you know, make sure you never feel it again. Like it's it, you're going to feel
2: it and and that is you know it's it feels bad but it isn't bad yes and going back to what you said about you know that toxic positivity and how that's actually more hurtful than helpful um it's it's not realistic so making sure that you can embrace these feelings and and actually openly talk about them i'm sure that, that has greatly impacted um, the way that you parent. And I'm sure your kids are grateful for that as well, because they feel like they can actually talk to you about what's coming on. Ooh, TBD. We will see it. We will see in 20 to 30 Got it. years. Middle age. <laughs> I will check back <laughs> in 20, 30 years. Got it. <laughs> so at Thrive, we talk about microsteps, which are small science-backed ways to get you going in the right direction when you're trying to create new behaviors. For example, for myself, in the morning, I make sure that before I even touch that phone to see who hit me up on Instagram while I was in my deep slumber, I do some meditation and some deep breathing to kind of just center myself for the day ahead. I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to be a true thriver over here. Mm. (laughs) So what are some baby steps you took that helped on your grief journey? Oh, I mean, I went to finally
1: see a therapist, which did not feel like a small step, Um, it's hard to say what are the things that I like actually did that helped. I, I, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know if I have like, if I have that perspective today, maybe on another day I could be like, yeah, that's really what helped. But like, and it's also like, I can't say that, uh, I would say turning, a turning point of it was having that conversation with my sister and being like, no, 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 this sucks. This is really bad. Um, and trying to do that more often, I also uh, was very resistant to being a widow. Obviously, no one's like, "Yes, I finally made it," but <laughs> I didn't want that to identify with that word, and I didn't want to know any other widows. And I now, you know, it's like I do have this online group called the Hot Young Widows Club. It's a real thing, and I that was so helpful to surround myself with women and men who had lost their person um i i feel like so much of what i did was like truly trying to undo like the further damage of of not just like experiencing this loss but then like gaslighting myself into being like no 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 no, no, no you're good but i did not i did not self-care i, I self-cared not at all yeah. like yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> i mean ultimately I, I it sounds like having honest conversations seemed to really help Um, you know, seeking communities, whether it was online. And honestly, you just do the best you can, you know, putting one foot in front of the other is enough, is more than enough uh, when you're grieving.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a very good point. It's a very good point. It's like I did, I wanted it to be you know, a checklist. I wanted it to be something like, because, you know, I did download meditation apps and I did, you know, go to yoga class and I did run, but I didn't do them with any sort of intention. I did them as a way of like avoiding. Mm. I did them because if I was running, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't really alone because I was listening to a podcast. (laughs) I was, you know. Right, right, right. I think the grief does not expire and now I do offer myself things like knowing that this is a hard month for me. And so if last week I spent an entire day not really doing anything, I I don't, you know, immediately talk shit about myself and, and say like, wow, you're such a lazy piece of trash.
2: I say, this is a hard month for me. I did what I needed to do. We're going to take a quick break and come right back with podcast host and author Nora McInerney. So for the thrive 5, I'm going to ask you some rapid fire questions and I want you to just answer with the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. Awesome. Um, what's one piece of advice you'd give to your younger self? Oh my god, just it'd be, it be you're not that bad, Nora. <laughs> I'd say You're not
1: that bad. You're not that bad. You're doing fine. You're doing fine and stop. Stop, stop comparing yourself against everybody else. Like you need to take a breather. Yeah, I, I was so, so deeply, deeply committed
2: to uh, thinking the worst of myself. Mm, I think everyone can, can take a piece from that there. Um, do you have a guilty pleasure that does not involve technology?
1: You know, I really don't feel guilty about the things that I like because I think it's just cool to like the things you like. And so what I like right now is I am I mean, I'm a tortoise owner, so I'm very into that. And I also love birds. I love birds, and I love love birds, which are these it's they're tiny parrots that I think they were captive birds that were like released accidentally in Phoenix. So they fly all around Phoenix. They're bright green with little blue butts and pink faces. They are so cute. And I am obsessed with feeding them, luring them to our yard, but also scaring away pigeons who try to eat the food. And I spend a lot of time on this, documenting the lovebirds, talking about the lovebirds. My whole family is like, we don't care. And I'm like, you
2: should, because they are very cute. Birding. Birding. Loving the birding. That's amazing. And I have not heard that one, so I love it. Original. Um, What's currently on your bedside table? Actually, I might have to open my closet to look. There's
1: like uh, 13 books at least that I want to read. Um, There is a lip mask. You might be thinking, what is that? It, it's just. No, I actually have it. Don't even. Yeah, I'm like. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know. I just. But you know what works as well as a lip mask, people?
2: Carmex. I swear it's. It's it's the best product, so always a Carmex. Um, uh, do you have a song or movie that immediately puts you in a good mood?
1: What? Oh my God! Honestly, it's a category of movies, which is like rom-coms from the early two thousands, late nineties. Guaranteed to please. It's it was like the golden age. I recently watched Runaway Bride, and I was like, it held up. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is good. It's good. Yes, yes. Give me all of those movies. Those are, yes. And then any sort of um corny Christmas movie that's like, oh, oh, I love it. But I also really like watching YouTube. I just love watching YouTube. And I watch these videos of abandoned building tours. Like people like go through abandoned buildings like, oh, we found this abandoned mansion. And they just
2: walk through it. And I I love it. Um, so lastly at thrive, we encourage doing one thing each day that brings you joy, even if it's super tiny, like making a breakfast you love or just going on a walk. So what is one small thing you do that helps you tap into joy? Oh, I read every day. I love reading. I read every single day.
1: Uh, Mm. and then also it's like, then my, then now like I have a seven-year-old who can read and he'll just sit next to me and read. And I'm like, ah, this is it. This is all I wanted. I just wanted a kid to sit next (laughs) to me and read. Don't ever play sports. (laughs)
2: <laughs> oh that is so sweet well Nora thank you so so much for being us, with us today it, it truly was a
1: pleasure oh thank you thank you and, and, and for sticking with the, the technical difficulties
2: we did a good job Thrive 5 is an iHeart Radio podcast from iHeart our executive producer is Carrie Lieberman our Thrive Global team includes producers Marina Kadekel and Margarita Bertzos. our talent booker is Lindsay Benoit O'Connell Special thanks to Ann Sachs and Madison Odenberg. Our production partner is Neon Hum Media. Jonathan Hirsch and Shara Morris are the executive producers. Our lead producer is Joanna Clay. Hansdale Sue engineered this episode and composed our theme music. I'm Clarice Metzger, and thank you so much for listening.